Welcome to Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I'm your host, Jeff Worsberg with Norton Rose Fulbright, and my guest today is David Feniger from HealthNet Federal Services. We have a great podcast for you today, all about TRICARE, basics and background and all the information that you need to know as a, a health lawyer. David, if you wouldn't mind starting, just telling us a little bit about your background. Sure. Hello, Jeff. I am the Vice President, General Counsel and Secretary of HealthNet Federal Services. I've been with the company now for about 15 years. We are based in Sacramento, although we are now in the post-COVID era, we're very geographically dispersed. I did my undergraduate work at University of Pennsylvania, and my law school degree is from Boston University School of Law. Fantastic. And, you know, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to TRICARE, because I think it's a great story. Sure. It's, it was kind of a circuitous route. I worked for six years as a trial attorney at the Justice Department in Washington, D.C. And among other things, I did some fascinating work, for example, on the Z- Zacharias Musawi prosecution. I also represented the United States before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court seeking electronic surveillance warrants. But the bulk of my work there uh, had to do with government contracts. And we would represent the United States before the United States Court of Federal Claims for all types of contracts, uh, many defense-related, but representing all agencies. And when I and I had we had little kids when we were living there, we ultimately decided to move back to California, and I went into private practice there again with that focus on federal government contracting. And as I was hustling and trying to bring in business for my law firm, I ended up, unbeknownst to me, getting an offer from HealthNet Federal Services because they needed to have a backfill to my then boss, who was the general counsel. Long story short, I uh, really had no background in TRICARE or healthcare law for that matter. And it was a steep learning curve, but that was kind of my winding road to HealthNet. Well, it's just an amazing example of you never know where your career is going to take you and how you know, maybe your next assignment might lead to, to the next step in your, your career path. So thank you for sharing that. So we're talking today about TRICARE. What, what is TRICARE? So TRICARE is essentially, it's a federal government entitlement program that's circumscribed by the U.S. statutory law and the Code of Federal Regulations. Essentially what it is, is it's healthcare for active duty service members, their families, and retirees. So your military healthcare. And it's the way it's designed is it's built around the concept that the Department of Defense wants to provide as much health care as it can within the four walls of its facilities. We call them MTFs or military treatment facilities. So what we do everything we can to ensure that the Defense Department provides as much care within those four walls. If they're unable to do that, then they come out to the civilian sector and they are healthcare is then provided in the civilian sector through uh, managed care support contractors, MCSCs, of which my company is one, and we'll speak more about that, or with respect to the TRICARE Dental or TRICARE Pharmacy, they too have commercial contracts. And for example, the United Concordia is the dental contractor for TRICARE Dental, and Express Scripts Inc. is the TRICARE Pharmacy contractor, known as T-Farm. But those are not the traditional healthcare, managed healthcare support contractors. And, and so let's, let's talk about that. Who are the, the managed care support contractors? So uh, the Defense Health Agency, which is the agency within the DOD that administers 
Healthcare has contracted with three different companies that act as MCSCs or these managed care support contractors. One is International SOS, which performs that role. And we'll talk more about what that role is, but that performs that supplemental role overseas. So in both the Pacific and Canada and anywhere in Europe where we have bases, that overflow care is provided by International SOS. And then in the United States, there are two contractors. And essentially, it's not quite the Mississippi River, but it's almost everything east of the Mississippi River is Humana Military. And then everything west is HealthNet Federal Services, which is the company that I represent. Currently, there are about for HealthNet Federal Services, my company, we have about $4 billion per year of healthcare spend that goes out into our network. We have about 2.9 million eligible beneficiaries. And then the Humana East region currently is larger. It's about 5.5 million eligible beneficiaries. However, there's a new, uh, there will be a new contract award that will go for the next 10 years. We're expecting an award to the awardee, we hope to be one, but whoever it is, the awardee will, it'll be a 10-year contract. But in this next generation, it's called T5 as for TRICARE fifth generation, that will be evenly divided between the East region and the West region in terms of the number of beneficiaries. But currently the Humana region is larger than the HealthNet region. You know, I'm, I'm imagine for many of our listeners, it's news to them that this is all provided uh, by private companies and, and managed care. So uh, what roles do the managed care support contractors play in, in supplementing the Department of Defense healthcare? So there's a number of different uh, ways in which we supplement and support DOD. First and foremost, we have a network of about 400,000 providers. And so when the government um, is unable and the Department of Defense is unable to provide that healthcare, we provide that. So that could be in the form of family members. It could be primary care in addition to all supplemental care, ancillary care, referral care. And in the case of active duty service members, many times they have their primary care within the MTF or military treatment facility. But sometimes we actually provide primary care for them and frequently supplemental care. So that's kind of first is, is this large network. Second of all, we have hundreds of employees staffing a call center, and we have very specific metrics we have to meet that are prescribed by contract, which is very unlike the commercial world. For example, we have to have less than 5% of all calls are blocked, meaning a busy signal has to be fewer than 5%. The average speed to answer time is prescribed to be 45 seconds or less. That's a contractual requirement. Um, and all calls have to be answered by a, a United States citizen sitting in the United States. So just sort of an example of the metrics that we have. We have medical management department that provides, provides case management, disease management. We track diseases and HEDIS measures, utilization management. And we've got a team of doctors and nurses that provide uh, beneficiaries that have comorbidities with managed care. We have an enrollment department that enrolls new TRICARE beneficiaries, so families and service members that are, that are new or switching regions, we have responsibility for that. We have a referral and authorization department, which I think we'll speak more to later. A program integrity unit, 
um, that I can go into some more detail if you'd like. That's very unlike your typical special investigations unit on the commercial side. We also pay all of the claims. About $4 billion in claims are processed each year through our subcontractor, PGBA, which is a Blue Cross Blue Shield company of South Carolina. And then finally, we have embedded personnel in the MTFs that include you know, retired generals and colonels that interact with our military commanders in the large MTFs, either remotely and, or as I said, some individuals are actually embedded there so that they can better understand the needs and better support and supplement uh, Department of Defense Healthcare. So you mentioned MTF's military treatment facilities, and, and my understanding is that the military treatment facilities, the, the so-called, not so-called, the, the on-base hospitals and clinics, have a contractual right of first refusal for referred care out to the phys- civilian sector. Now, how, how does that work in practice? So it's a, a very interesting relationship that we have with DOD. We do, as I mentioned before, we want to do is everything we can to help DOD ensure that they provide the care first and that this care, that they call it spillage, only comes to us as a matter of last resort because that's you know best for the service members and their families and retirees because the MTFs are very well suited to understanding their particular needs. But so we do everything we can to share metrics with them so they know what providers we have in our network that are ready you know, to receive patients. But we, we refer to this right of first refusal as ROFR, we call it a ROFR process. And so that is very diligently adhered to. Metrics are shared both directions. So we can try to keep as much care inside the MTFs not only to, for the benefit of the beneficiaries, but also from the taxpayer benefit. The taxpayers want to make sure that the providers that are military personnel are providing the first level of care if they're available. And these managed care support contracts, how long are they typically in, in place? Are they always 10 years like this, this next T5? They range um, in, in length. Um, many times they're five or six years. But there's such an undertaking to uh, swap out or go through these procurements that many times, if not most of the time, the contracts are extended by at least one or two years. And so, for example, our current contract right now is called T2017, and that has just been extended one year, and the government has the right to extend it even two years. So even though we're looking at a new contract award imminently, there's still going to be a one-year transition in process before healthcare is even delivered. So we will continue on our current West region contract for at least one additional year, whether or not we win or lose the next generation contract. These contracts are so large that there's very few competitors, but those that do compete, it's, it's extremely competitive. And so these will always be met by a bid protest. Uh, Historically, there has never not been a contract award met by a bid protest. As an example, in 2009, it was the contract before the current one. It was called T3. And in that case, Aetna was the awardee for then the North region, which was held by HealthNet. And so we were purported to be booted out of that region, but we protested that we were able to identify a conflict of interest in a very high profile and often cited case to this day, and we were able to get that decision reversed 
which was a good day, for, a very good day for us. So these will always be met by protests and interesting protest process. The GAO, Government Accountability Office, is usually the avenue that most losing bidders go to to protest. Because if you go to the GAO, there's an automatic stay that is basically initiated so the government can't continue with the procurement with the new contractor. And the GAO is then committed by Congress. They're an arm of Congress. They're permitted to conclude the protest within 100 days. And they always do. If they don't, they have to explain to Congress why. But very, very rare that they do not meet that deadline. So we expect that no matter who wins, there will likely be a GAO protest coming up. And then there's a second bite at the apple. Typically, protesters may take advantage of, which is at the Court of Federal Claims. So those are usually the two avenues. So the, a lengthy protest process, but it always keeps things interesting for attorneys after award. <laughs> now, are there, uh, are there different classifications of beneficiaries similar in nature to, to HMOs and BPOs in the, the commercial world? Yeah, that's a great question, Jeff. Um, very much so. And in the TRICARE world, it's referred to as TRICARE Prime, which is more akin to an HMO, and then TRICARE Select, which is like a PPO. And Select, for example, and it, there's some slight nuances here, but in general, if you if a Select service member or family member decides to go out to the network to, to a provider of choice that does not happen to be a network provider, they have to pay 20% cost share for that service. And then Prime is, is, is like an HMO. Prime, there's no annual enrollment fee if you're an active duty service member or an active duty family member, although there is an enrollment fee for retirees. And if you're curious about premiums, it's exceedingly reasonable, which makes sense since these are our, you know, our soldiers and family members and they're putting their, them, themselves in harm's way to you know, support their country in combat. TRICARE Select, if you join the military for January 2018, you're only paying $323 per individual or $647 per family. It's a little bit higher if you joined afterwards. And retirees are typically the ones that choose between TRICARE Prime and TRICARE Select because they have a premium either way. And I, I feel like we need a Venn diagram for all these different aspects of the, the program. I'm going to further layer something upon that. So what happens when someone gets to retirement age, when they become a retiree, they reach the age of 65 and they're now me Medicare eligible? Right. So a retiree, of course, in the military could occur before 65. And so retirees up to the age of 65 are part of the our TRICARE network and our TRICARE contract. Once a retiree reaches the age of 65, they're, of course, Medicare eligible. And in that case, they move to a new contractor that's referred to as the TDEFIC contractor or the TRICARE dual eligible fiscal intermediary contract. And that's a contract that's currently held by WPS out of Wisconsin. And in that situation, Medicare is the primary payor and then TRICARE pays second. So that's the nuanced slice of retirees that don't fall within the managed care support contractors. So you're right, it does get, it does get quickly, you get bogged down in the weeds and it's a complicated program. No, but that's very interesting. And I, I think one of the things that I'm taking away from this podcast is the, the similarities and the parallels to, to other programs. I mean, all of these names that you've, you've referenced, I, I assume most listeners will know from perhaps the Medicare context and, and their role as Max. And so 
or, or duels, you know, duels in the, the Medicare, Medicaid context. Right. So really interesting to see the, the parallels. Well, we've taken up a, a lot of your time, but I do want to ask one more question because program integrity is obviously a huge part of healthcare and everyone listening, probably a, a part of their practice deals with that program integrity. Tell us a little bit more about your program integrity unit and how that operates. Yeah, so this is a fascinating unit, and I often say it was my favorite group within our company. And for many years, this operational group actually rolled up to me, the general counsel. It no longer does, but it's a fascinating program, and it's very different than your special investigative units or SIUs um, on the commercial side. This program integrity unit is a contractual requirement. And so as part of our TRICARE contract, we are required every year to identify 10 referrals that we present to the Department of Defense Defense Health Agency Program Integrity Unit. And those 10 referrals have to be where we identify providers where there's a likelihood of fraud. And the, each, to get credit for a referral, it has to be developed within 180 days and the potential dollar loss has to exceed $100,000. So these are cases that are meticulously crafted, put together, investigated by, we have uh, former DCIS and NCIS criminal investigators. They have government background. They're now in the private sector working for us and along with nurses, and they're checking for any type of abnormality in claims, any type of suspected fraud, services not rendered, upcoding, these type of things. And then we get graded on each of these. And if we have some upside potential, if we get graded well on the 10, if we get more than 10, but it's fascinating to see how this works. And at the end of the day, we've always been, knock on wood, we've always been successful in making at least the minimum. And we frequently exceed those, those referrals. And then the government looks at it and they bring in law enforcement personnel from Defense Criminal Investigative Services or NCIS, many times the FBI and the assistant U.S. attorneys, and they determine whether or not they want to prosecute civilly or criminally these providers. And then we provide, we, we support the government. We can conduct more audits for them. We can provide uh, witnesses to them as these prosecutions move forward. And many times they do, and many times they the government, just for whatever reason of prosecutorial discretion, they de deem that it, they don't want to move forward with a case. And in those situations, they remand those to us. And then we're supposed to take administrative action. And we do, meaning we'll either recoup the money or offset where we can put providers on prepayment review, um, where we tell them, hey, we're meticulously reviewing every single claim you submit, or we, and, or, and frequently it's and, we educate the providers to stop doing what they're doing. And, and, uh, but it's a, it's a fascinating group of professionals that are a little bit unusual in the healthcare industry and, and they do, they do a great job and, and we have got a, developed a great relationship with defense health agency PI section as well in, as part of this process. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your, your expertise with us and, and your time. This has been fascinating, and in, in particular, hearing how, how you serve those that serve in terms of their health care, it's just uh, amazing to hear about and to see the parallels to other aspects of the healthcare system. Really, really enjoyed it. David Feniger, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you to everyone listening to the Voices in Health Law podcast. 
Thank you so much, Jeff. This was my pleasure. The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Pinnacle Health.